This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is East of Eden, a program devoted to the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. Welcome to East of Eden, the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. I'm Nick Batzig, your host again for the show, and this is our 13th episode. And we are looking at another one of Jonathan Edwards' sermons today. Um, We are going to give consideration to his sermon, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, based on Hebrews 13, verse 8. And I am here with our two regular panelists, Dave Filson, who is the teaching elder at uh, Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Dave, it's great to have you back on the show. So good to be here. We are also sitting down with Jeffrey C. Waddington, who is the teacher of the congregation at uh, Calvary OPC in Ringo's, New Jersey. Jeff, it's great to have you on the show. Oh, it's good to be here. How's everything going at your new uh, stated supply position there at Knox OPC the, uh, in Lansdowne? The, yeah, the Lord, the Lord is... Uh been very gracious. Uh, people are very encouraging. Uh, it's the first time that I've had to regularly prepare two messages for every Sunday. Uh, been a blessing delving into the Gospel of John in the morning and the prophet Ezekiel in the evening. Uh, uh, this Sunday will be Sunday number 11. Very Sunday nice. number 11. So. Very, very nice. Well, um, as I mentioned already, we are looking at Edward's sermon on Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. That can be found in um, the two-volume works of Edward's, the Hickman edition published by Banner of Truth and also Hendrickson. Um, I believe it's number 14 in the sermons uh, in that set, in that two-volume set. Um, Interestingly, it, it can be found on the Yale uh, Jonathan Edwards site, uh, the WJE site at um, Yale University there online under uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 10. So that's a, that's a glitch we may want to tell the, the men at uh, the Jonathan Edwards Center about that they have uh, listed this improperly. So you're not going to find this sermon there. You're also not going to find it fully uh, transcribed there. It's the shorthand um, uh, notes of Edwards from this sermon that have been filled out in the edited version that we're covering today. But if you're looking for it online, you can find it at BibleBB.com, and they have a ton of Jonathan Edwards sermons there online. You can just Google that and find it online if you're interested in reading it. This is, again, one of my favorite Edwards sermons. I know I say that a lot, but there is a reason why we're picking the sermons we're picking in the order in which we're picking them. And um, I love the way that Edwards um, develops this theme. I wanted to just take a minute and uh, let Dave uh, walk us into the setting of this sermon. What was going on when Edwards was preaching this? When did he preach it, and why is that significant, Dave? Right. Uh, this sermon was preached in April of 1738. Now, if you'll think about Edwards' life, uh, at this point he's been, for lack of a better word, the senior pastor there at Northampton for almost a decade. Uh, He is preaching this sermon about four years after, in some sense, the fuse was lit for the First Great Awakening with the Justification series back in 34. 
The First Great Awakening is well underway. Edward's thoughts are turning toward uh, revival themes and and responding to Christian experience, religious experience in the context of of the Awakening. 1737, of course, he publishes a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God. Uh, as soon as he preaches this sermon in April of 38, uh, within probably about a month, he starts his charity and its fruits lecture, seri- lecture series, which actually takes up um, the bulk of that summer uh, of, of 38. So that's what's kind of going on contextually in his mind, revival themes, religious experience themes. Interestingly, though, uh, thematically, and we're, while we're dealing with history, just thematically, heavy covenantal um, focus here in this sermon. And if you think about the last sermon we considered, Safety, Rest, and Sweet Refreshment, where he's dealing so much with the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, here he's going to be talking about the covenant of grace. And so that that covenantal theme uh, still prevalent in his preaching almost 10 years, uh, 10 years later. Uh, what will be coming up shortly after this, and again, just trying to give a little historical context here, is he'll begin his History of the Work of Redemption series a year later. So that'll give you a little bit of context. Yeah, that's great. And Jeff, um, tell us a little bit about the structure of this sermon. You had mentioned when we right. were preparing for this, the simplicity of this. Yeah, the the, uh, the sermon here is pretty straightforward and actually one of the shorter ones that we've looked at. In the Hickman edition, it goes from page uh, volume 2, uh, page 949 to 954. Uh, it is, of course, in the typical uh, plain style format of exposition, doctrine, and application. The exposition is limited to primarily uh, two big paragraphs and then a basically a single sentence third paragraph. The doctrine of the sermon is this, Jesus Christ is the same now that he ever has been and ever will be. And basically he says Christ is thus unchangeable in two respects, and the two respects are with regard to his divine nature and as uh, to his office as mediator and savior. Now, he will then go to unpack that in terms of uh, he's unchangeable with regard to uh, the promises he has made to those who come to him by faith in uh, in him. And then secondarily, he's unchangeable with regard to his threat of judgment. And then he'll come back around to the uh, to remind us about the promises uh, to, to, uh, that he has made to those who come to him in faith. And he'll spin that out in the application section. Uh, so that's the basic basic structure. Yeah, that's great. One of the things I loved about this sermon when I first read it was the way that Edwards, though, very briefly, nevertheless, he deals with the context in which um, this verse is found, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And and you know that so many Christians, and I've been guilty of this, have um, have the 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 weakness of often taking a verse of scripture out of context, not considering the context and and failing to see the richness and fullness of it. And what um, Edwards does is he shows the close connection to verse seven and then to verse seventeen um, of Hebrews thirteen and how um, this statement is a statement in relationship to the faith of elders in the church who had gone before and elders currently ruling over the people in the church that Jesus had appointed. And he, uh, Edward says, 
By following their faith, because in verse 13 it says, remember those who rule over you and consider the outcome of their faith. Edward says, by following their faith, the apostle seems to intend adhering to the Christian faith and those wholesome doctrines which their pastors taught them and not depart from them, as many in their day had done to heretical tenets. And the enforcement of the doctrine is, in these words, considering the end of their conversation, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says, Christ is the end of their conversation. He is the end of their conversation in their office, the end of the doctrines which they taught, and the end of all their administrations and all their labors and their works. So again, you see a very Christocentric focus. And here in relationship to the example, very interesting, isn't it, how the the Christocentric or redemptive historical comes together with the exemplaristic here, where it's the example of these elders, and the example was that Christ was the end of their faith, he was the focus, he was the goal, he was the substance of their doctrine, and he is unchangeable. It's the same Christ. And this, um, I'll just note to our listeners, reminded me of a sermon that Voss had um, delivered at Princeton in the early um, 1900s, maybe 1903, a sermon on Hebrews 13.8, where he really uh, unpacks exactly what Edward says in this opening paragraph in a, in a more lengthy way to talk about that relationship between the faith of the saints and the faith of elders and that faith being founded on and grounded on Jesus Christ who is unchangeable. So I really appreciated Edward's dealing with that contextually at the beginning. Yeah, this is another you know beautiful example of Edward's um, you know, really passion for Christ as mediator. I mean, I think if you think back to the various sermons that we have explored thus far, how often Christ's mediatorial work comes up, his offices, his person, uh, Christ as mediator. And he always ties his mediatorial work in with covenant theology. He ties it in with fitness, the fitness of Christ uh, for, for the task. And as I said a second ago, uh, you know, and, and it reminds me of Calvin uh, as well. You know, right? Calvin, who who talks about Jesus being as God and man, human and divine, the only one who could who could possibly do this. You know, he, Calvin has his uh, his quotation in um, in the Institutes where he speaks of it was necessary for him to be human so that he could feel the sting of death and divine so that he could overcome it. Edwards picks up on this in talking about the fitness of Christ for the mediatorial task. Christ is the only mediator between God and man that ever has, ever, ever shall be. And he talks about him being an everlasting savior, but then he ties that in with the unchangeableness. This is interesting. The unchangeableness of the covenant of grace. He speaks about the covenant of redemption, which he actually spends more time in the sermon. We've, we discussed uh, previously safety, rest and sweet refreshment, which again was about some 10 years, almost 10 years earlier that he preached that briefly touches on the covenant of redemption, but then he talks about the covenant of grace, and again, in true Calvinian fashion, says that it's essentially the same covenant throughout the pages of, um, of, of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Just so, as Christ does not alter his covenant, so he unchangeably fulfills it, never departs in the least jot or tittle. So you have an unchangeable Christ fulfilling a consistent uh, an unchangeable covenant of grace, but unchangeable covenant of grace, not that there aren't new nuances or administrations or developments or revelations of that covenant, but the essence of that covenant being unchangeable. Yeah, it's a really great section on the covenant of redemption, covenant of grace. I know some theologians are going to say those are two aspects of the same thing, the eternal and the historical, but um, I thought 
uh, it was fitting that he did this. Interesting that he did it, but fitting in the book of Hebrews, because, you know, in Hebrews 6, I believe, is that whole discussion about God's unchangeable covenant with Abraham, the immutability of God, the unchangeableness of God, that he swore by an oath, that he swore by himself when he could swear by no one greater. He swore by himself that by two immutable things, two unchangeable things. So you have the, the unchangeableness of God's covenantal bond based on his word in Hebrews, and then you have the unchangeable Christ, who is the Christ of the covenant, the covenant keeper, the substance of the covenant, the redeemer of the covenant. So I thought that was particularly helpful, the way that yeah, Edwards he, tied that in. He, he ties in the unchangeableness of Christ's offices hmm. with the unchangeableness of his promises in fulfilling, fulfilling those offices. You know, however, there is one thing wherein Christ's unchangeableness in his office appears that he never departs from the promises that he hath made to man. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on to talk about this This is the same covenant of grace in all the ages of the world. This, this covenant is not essentially different now from what it was in the Old Testament and even before the flood, and it always will remain the same. It is therefore called an everlasting covenant. So I just love the way that he's giving us an unchangeable Christ, particularly in his offices, with the unchangeable covenant promises, and those two are intimately tied together. Yeah, I also thought it was fascinating the way that when Edwards enters in on the unchangeableness of Christ's office, he deals strongly with the typological nature of redemptive history and how there was a changeableness in the types, which is really helpful. And obviously that comes out of Hebrews too, right? That the Levitical priests were types and that one came and he died and another came and he died and another came and he died, but Christ endures forever, that he is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Melchizedek himself being a type. And Edwards will deal with that. He'll actually say there have been many typical mediators. Many of them continued but a while and then passed away. Others have come in their room, but the great anti-type speaking of Jesus Christ, continues forever. He says there have been prophets that have been raised up. These have died. Others have succeeded them. Moses was not suffered to continue by reason of death. The dispensation which he introduced was abolished to give place to another, which Christ should introduce. And then he goes on to Aaron and Melchizedek. So very interesting, um, very interesting paragraph on typology. Yeah, and you know, if you notice his sermons, there's a, there's a pattern, isn't there? Early in his sermons, um, sometimes in exposition, but usually at the beginning of the doctrinal section of the sermons is where he brings out just a very blatant typological exposition and give you a paragraph or two or three of typology, uh, usually at the beginning of, of these sermons. And I love this, too. This, this may be my favorite quotation in the whole sermon while we're dealing with, uh, with his unchangeableness, especially in light of the fact that, that typologically priests came and went, but now we have the, un, the truly unchangeable one. I love this. The sacrifice that he has offered and the righteousness that he has performed is at all times equally sufficient. His blood is as sufficient to cleanse away sin now as when it was warm from his wounds. Mm, amen. Yeah. Yeah, that's a powerful quote. Jeff, you were going to say? Sensing that, just conjuring up the notion of the uh, the image of the, the blood from the wounds. Uh, we've all uh, presumably been injured, and we understand that when the blood comes forth, it's warm. Mm-hmm. And it's still sufficient after 2,000 years. Uh, Christ's uh, shed blood is just as sufficient now as when it was originally shed. And, of course, one could argue backwards, right, that it was sufficient for the saints that came before his sacrifice. 
and it will be sufficient for those who come after us as well. Uh, one thing I noticed, and this actually comes in the paragraph immediately after you, that sentence that you cited, David, was the, the, the what Edwards notes about our Lord's disposition. He is now and ever will be the same that he ever has been in the disposition and will which he exercises in his office. He is not changeable in his disposition as men are that are called to any office or business, which causes them to appear and act very differently in their offices at some times from what they do at others. In other words, we we can be uh, exuberant, adamant uh, in, in our duties at one time and lethargic uh, at another uh, that's part of our being human beings and fallible and fallen. Christ, on the other hand, is none of those things. He is always the same yesterday, today, and forever. To give you an example, he is ever disposed to execute his office in a holy manner. He ever has been, still is, and ever will be disposed to execute it so as to glorify his Father, to discountenance sin, and to encourage holiness. He ever exercised the same grace and mercy in his office. He undertook the office of a mediator from eternity with delight. There's a reference, an echo, regarding the covenant of redemption. He then delighted in the thoughts of saving sinners, and he still delights in it. He never has altered from the disposition to accomplish it. When men actually fell and became a rebel, when man actually fell and became a rebel and an enemy, an enemy to his father and to himself. Still, it was his delight to do the part of a mediator for him. And when he came into the world and came to his last age in agony, when the bitter cup that he was to drink was set before him, and he had an extraordinary view of it, uh, a reference back to the sermon that we've already analyzed, Christ's agony, so that the sight of it made his soul exceeding sorrow sorrowful even unto death, and caused him to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, he still retained his disposition to do the part of a mediator for sinners, and delighted in the thoughts of it. So even when he was enduring the cross, the salvation of sinners was a joy set before him, and he never alters from his readiness to receive and embrace all that do in faith come to him. He is always equally willing to receive such. His love is unchangeable. He loves from eternity. He loves with an everlasting love, and it will be to eternity. Having loved his own, he loved them unto the end. Yeah, that's a, that's a really awesome statement, uh, awesome way that Edwards puts um, the unchangeableness of Christ for sinners. And I was really right. taken back in this section about how Edwards will go on to say, you know, essentially – it doesn't matter how sinful you've been. Christ is still ready to receive great sinners. And you think about the Gospels, just thinking, reading through the Gospels, the people that Jesus saved, you know, prostitutes and thieving tax collectors and th- a thief on the cross. And Murderers. Uh, he is the same, the same gracious Lord Jesus, ready to receive those that come to him because he's loved his own who are in the world. He's loved them to the end. It made me also think a little bit about uh, what Spurgeon said once about Christ being born in the manger, he said the fact that he was born in the manger and not in a king's house is for you ought to be a, a reason that you can go to him. 
that he was born in this lowly condition, that he was born in humility, and that the, the worst sinner can approach him because he wasn't born in this dignified palace guarded by people. And in, in that same way, he, you can go to him because he received the worst sinners in the days of his flesh. He received the filthiest and the vilest sinners, and that he is the same Christ for the filthiest and the vilest today. And I think that needs to be really preached yeah. and proclaimed today. Um, and, and it also needs, and he stresses this, I think, in the application part, uh, I could be wrong on that, but where he talks about the fact that when we, as as his uh, children, or as uh, fellow heirs, as those who have come to trust in Christ, when we let him down, uh, he still accepts us because we are in him. Right. Uh, and that's important. I think that's an element that we wrestle with. Okay, when we we've when we've sinned, when we've failed, uh, when we've disappointed, when we've displeased the Lord, uh, yes, you know, we may experience uh, fatherly displeasure, and we don't want to discountenance that. But the fact is that God, most clearly seen in the person of Jesus Christ, still loves us. Still love, and this is kind of like what we talk about as parents with children. We're not to have uh, conditional love, right? Now, we may have to discipline our children, uh, but it's not as if we're saying, I'll love you if you get good grades. I'll love you if you have a clean room. Right. But uh, I'll love you if you make me look good in the sight of the world. Right. But Christ says, I love you. I gave myself for you. I want you to be obedient. But I'm here uh, to to pick you back up when you've fallen. Yeah, and it's interesting. Let's move into the application section because we've pretty much covered uh, the introduction and then the doctrine. And Edwards does some fairly interesting and probably to some, I would say, unexpected things in the applicatory section, as you've already noticed one, uh, noted one, Jeff, but... um, it's interesting that he opens with a brief statement about Jesus being the second Adam, and he says um, that the first Adam, the first surety of mankind, failed in his work because he was a mere creature and he was a mutable being, a changeable being. Uh, Edward says, though he had so great a trust committed to him as the care of eternal welfare of his posterity, yet not being unchangeable, he failed and transgressed God's holy covenant. Then he says, Christ, whom God appointed to this work to be to us a second Adam, is such a one that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and therefore was not liable to fail in his undertaking. He was sufficient to be depended on as one that would certainly stand all trials, go through all difficulties, until he had finished the work he had undertaken and actually wrought out eternal redemption for us. And that's the first point of application. I thought yeah, that was interesting that here's the application. Jesus is the unchangeable second Adam. Yeah, it's a doctrine of fitness applied to Christ. Christ is fit. I mean, he used that language, but you know that theme, and I know I'm sounding like a broken record because I'm always bringing this up and you know trying to ferret out <laughs> fitness everywhere I can in, uh, in Edwards. But Christ is fit to be the second Adam, yeah. whereas the first Adam was not unchangeable. Christ is, therefore he is fit to be the second Adam. Another way to put the fact, to say it maybe negatively is to say that Christ is not fickle. Yeah, that's right. Be assured, you can almost, you could almost plug into Edward's first application. Make sure you know that Christ doesn't change. 
Um, and that that is a powerful, that's the anchor for the soul, right? That's the, that's what the writer of Hebrews says. This hope we have is an anchor for the soul, sure and steadfast passes through the heavens where Jesus, the forerunner has gone for us. Um, and and think about this though, Nick, and this is really not Edwards bringing this out, but, but for our listeners sake, this is a sermon from Hebrews, an unchangeable Christ. And the author of Hebrews speaking of the unchangeability, the immutability of Christ is something those Hebrew Christians desperately needed to hear. Because so many of the things they they depended on for stability, that's right, uh, are now um, are now no longer something that they can they can rely on, right? That's right. The sights True. and sounds and smells of the sacrificial system, mm. its stability, its familiarity, and the author of Hebrews is encouraging them not to drift back to that. Um, they they needed something stable, and they have it ultimately in Christ. Yeah, that's interesting. It is interesting that so much of what Edwards writes in here really coalesces with the theology of the book of Hebrews. You can see him working, even though he doesn't proof text the book a whole lot, but even the typological section, the section on the covenant of redemption and grace, and um, you can see him moving through the book of Hebrews all through this sermon and bringing these things to bear. Um, now, it's interesting. There's two final sections of application, and Actually, I'm sorry, there's three more sections of application after this. There's four in all. And in the second and third, Edwards takes sort of a twist with this. He says, The truth may be well applied to the awakening of those who profess to be Christians, and this on several accounts. He notes, You may be hence assured that Christ will fulfill his threatenings that he has denounced against unbelievers. You know, you could almost, you could almost, sense a, a universalist listening to our show saying, yes, 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 you know, everybody's going to be saved. Christ is the same. Christ saves everybody. And Edwards is like, no, That's he right. doesn't change. That means he's going to fulfill all of his threats against the entire unbelieving world. And you can be assured that he will not change in that, that just as he won't change as savior for his people, he won't change as judge of unbelievers. I thought that was a very interesting twist that I personally um, would never have done in my own sermon, but which I'm thankful that Edwards did. What, thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's well, similar to Paul, is it not, in Acts 17? You know, Christ can no more deny his role as judge than he can deny his own resurrection. True. No, I mean, this, this is, uh, as you say, it's kind of something that we, even myself, I find myself gravitating at the end of a sermon to want to stress the grace of Christ. Uh, but, but, and he will. Uh, he will return to that. But here he's reminding us, okay, the Lord is steadfast. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what has he said to the, about those who do not come to him? They will be judged, and, and they will be bound for uh, uh, an eternity of hell. And, and, and really, you know, I think it was uh, Van Til and Edwards. Uh, Edwards, uh, well, they agreed on many things, but... Uh, Edwards, I think, is the one who says, you know, people are, you know, basically criticize me for the sermons where I do the hellfire and brimstone, except that if it's true that, that someone is bound for an eternity of hell, what is the thing I ought to be doing? The thing I ought to be doing is telling them that so that I can pull them as a brand from a fire, Right. Uh, and and that's what he's doing here. You'll see he 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 deals straightforwardly forwardly with the unbeliever, and then he moves to into the second category of those who are um, 
awakened. In other words, he says there, uh, in the, under the third category, to those who have been heretofore under awakenings but have now become senseless and careless, this doctrine shows your folly. You act as if Christ were altered, as though he were not now so dreadful a judge, and his displeasure not so much to be feared as heretofore. So he's reminding his hearers, or a certain class of his hearers, okay, at one time you were concerned about this, the threaten, threatenings of judgment that came from the lips of Christ in the Gospels and in the New Testament, but now you're not so concerned. Well, why is that the case? Is it is has Jesus backed off? Has he changed his mind and said, "Well, you know, yeah, I'm not going to do that." And 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 Edward says, "No. He has the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you were concerned about your spiritual well-being then, you should be concerned about your spiritual well-being now." And that's that's actually a good reminder. Yeah, Edward spends an inordinate amount of time actually on this in the sermon compared to what he spends on other um, applications. And I'm wondering, is the cooling of the spiritual temperature in Northampton from the Great Awakening in view? Is that what he is? Is he dealing with uh, the, the those were there great numbers that were getting excited and it showed some kind of spiritual awakening and that's what he's dealing with historically? Yeah, I think that is the case. Uh, and, you know, again, the the fuse being lit, in a sense, in 34 with the Justification series. Well, at this point, they've had about four years of this. Um, they're enjoying some popularity. It was in, you know, the 30s, around the mid-30s, I think around 33, that they began building their meeting house, right? Right. Uh, the historical sure. background to the, to the period is, you know, they're doing all the things churches do. They're forming a building committee, and, and they're concerning themselves with seating arrangements and who is of the, the best estate in life is going to get uh, the closer seats in the seating arrangement, the seating chart for the, for the sanctuary, et cetera. There are a lot of things wherein they're becoming comfortable, I think, and Edwards always has his – his thumb on the pulse of this and is always worried about this, that they're becoming comfortable with the outpouring of blessing and are becoming concerned about very worldly things and are becoming very worldly themselves. And so you'll see him speak in these ways throughout this period, which is really the the period of relative popularity for him, which would have been you know, from around 29 to around 44 Right. And and during this period, he is wanting to remind them, don't become so comfortable with the outpouring of blessing that you lose your first love, the passion and joy you had for Christ when these awakenings first came, um, you know, abates in your life and you become focused on other things. I think, I think you're right, Nick. I think that's definitely the case. Well, and he says, I mean, he, he pinpoints it to the country itself at this time in um, America's history. He says, though Christ and his doctrine and the religion that he taught are always the same, yet this country has great multitudes in it that are driven to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So you can sense Edward seeing, I mean, imagine if Edwards lived today, wow, you know, mm-hmm. seeing yeah. uh, what was happening in the decline in North America he says, and now for a long time, it's been exceedingly corrupted by the prevalency of many evil customs and practices. Um, uh, it's interesting that he is really, you know, bringing, in a sense, these words off the text and bringing them to bear. Um, I think that's important. You know, sometimes I fear in my own preaching 
that I can be so concerned about being so general that I don't preach to the congregation in front of me. And I've started, there have been times that I've, I've preached very specifically to our congregation, thinking about the spiritual temperature of our congregation. No, Jesus does this, right? Book of Revelation, yeah. chapter 2 and 3, each church is different. And so it is, it's, a, it's a helpful example to us that Edwards is dealing with the context in which his listeners are, um, are found. You can almost sense a frustration in him. I think in this sermon that he, cause he says even to not just the false uh, professors, those that were once, you know, spiritually awakened, but he says, he says, third, uh, this doctrine reproves those who have, who have been seen. Oh, I'm sorry. He says, fourth, the truly godly are greatly to be reproved for their declension. There are many such here as I terribly hope Charitably hope, and many of them, I fear, have been guilty of great decline, declension in religion. Formerly, they were lively and animated in religion. Now they are dull and indifferent. Formerly, their hearts went up on high after God, but now after the world. They carried themselves for a while very exemplary, but have since behaved in such a manner as to wound religion. Here, he's dealing with the backslider, right? Not the hypocrite, right. but the Someone backsliding believer. Yeah. Right. Thoughts uh, on was, that? Yeah, I was – well, I, first, in a general comment – We've, you know, I think um, uh, it's been noted by others that Edwards is very a good example of the preacher who targets several different kinds of hearers in the congregation. This actually is one of those sermons where you can easily see that. Uh, and we pointed out it's, he he goes through the different categories of of listeners uh, as he uh, seeks to bring home the application of this message. Uh, and he's gone through the person who's been awakened. And remember, for Edwards, someone who's awakened is not someone who's saved, right? Because you can be awakened and never come to faith in Christ. Right. Uh, right. So awakening is, I guess, somewhat of a common operation of the Holy Spirit. It's not the same thing as regeneration. Correct. They're two different things, and that's something that's important to, to note in Edwards' thinking. So it's really he that Hebrews six one to five thing, isn't right, it, Jeff? Right. 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 He, he, so he moves from the awakened person. Uh, then he had that second category, which he skipped over uh, the person who's in covenant. So there's the person who's actually in the visible church, right? So he's almost working in concentric circles. The person who has been awakened, the sinner who's been awakened, the 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 person who is in covenant with the with Christ at least externally. Then he's dealing, as you pointed out, Nick, with, with the person who is actually a believer but who's backslidden, right? Right. Uh, and, and then uh, he'll move on to uh, the doctrine affords a matter of reproof uh, to those of us in this town. So now he's dealing, he's dealt with individuals, categories of individuals. Now in, in number five, he deals with the town. And this is where, which gets it to your previous question, Nick. What was the declension in, in spiritual commitment and fervor that was occurring in the town and maybe across the this, the, the, the colony? Uh, is that in the background? Well, obviously, point five makes it clear uh, that he says, this doctrine affords matter of reproof to us of this town for our declining as much from what we have lately been that we have exceedingly declined in religion is most manifest and what all confess. Right. A little while ago, uh, Christ was the great object of regard amongst us, and so on and so forth. But now, 
were not. So he's dealing with the, the corporate nature of the church. And then, okay, so there he's, he's dealt, uh, he's pointed out that Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever in terms of his searching judgment, judgments and threatenings. But in the final section, in section four, uh, he'll deal with the uh, encouraging aspects of Christ's uh, uh, being the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You'll note there the truth in section four. He said the truth taught in the text may be applied by way of encouragement. Okay. Well, let me let me just say before we enter into that, sure. if our listeners are wondering about the theology of apostasy and backsliding, which is a huge discussion, a huge subject, I'm sure it opens a thousand questions for a lot of people. I want to encourage you, if you have the time, to work through a volume, to work through John Owen, volume six in the works, um, which really deals with apostasy and the teaching of the book of Hebrews. But if if you're pressed for time, which I'm sure most are, at least read a little article by Sinclair Ferguson called Apostasy and How It Happens. It was written in 2004. It's at the Ligonier Ministry website, Apostasy and How It Happens, Sinclair Ferguson. And I love what he says here. He says, uh, halfway down, the solemn fact is that none of us can tell the difference between the beginning of backsliding and the beginning of apostasy. Both look the same. And then he goes on to kind of talk about uh, the dynamics of both. And so you see how Edwards is really bringing the two together in the sermon apostasy or the danger toward apostasy, those who are most likely unconverted, but like the second hearer in the, in the parable of the four seeds, Four soils, you know, they show some joy for a time, but then they fall away. And then the backsliding Christian, both are great dangers. Christ is the solution to both, going to him, embracing him, closing with him, as Edwards will say and the Puritans will say, is the solution to those things. Um, So now, Jeff, you were moving us into the final where he does end, the final point of application, he does end with a note of encouragement. Hey, can I can I interject one quick thing here, Nick? Jeff was talking about what was going on there in this town, and Edwards, you know, lays out some of those things how they are pursuing worldliness and that kind of thing, and their love for Christ and their fervor for Him is 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 abating. And it's interesting if we just do the math on this at the end of that section that Jeff was uh, mentioning. He points to Christ who hasn't altered, who hasn't changed. It's the folks in that town who have changed from when they were first full of praise for Christ and love for one another. And then he says, are we so foolish to think that he, that is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is so much altered from what he was three years ago? If you do the math on that from where Edwards was, you go back three years roughly, and what you have is the beginning of, of the awakening there right, because right. as I mentioned earlier, the justification series in 34. So probably toward the end of 34, they're really experiencing, Hey, this is, this is really happening. This is really taken off. And Edwards is making a very historical contextual, you know, specific comment here three years ago. It was this way. Christ hasn't changed in the last three years. We have. That's right. As we move into the, uh, the final point of application, as Jeff has noted already, uh, it's a point of encouragement. So Edwards doesn't leave his uh, listeners here in just a state of despondency or fear, or he, he's not trying to leave them unsettled um, in the sense that all of them are hypocrites or all of them are probably backslidden. Uh, Jeff, why don't you tell us a little bit yeah. about this final sure. point of application? 
there's actually two points, and, and it basically breaks down encouragement for the sinner and then encouragement for the saint in, in the fifth point. But it goes something like this. Uh, to sinners whose minds are burdened and exercised with concern about the state of their souls, to, to uh, come to Christ and to put their trust in, in him for salvation. If Christ is now and ever will be the same that he ever was, then here is great encouragement for you to come to him as will be will appear by considering two things how Christ has invited you to come to him with promises that he will accept of you if you do so that's the first point and then he breaks that down it shows us that that Christ invited such as Christ invited such sinners when these invitations were spoken and penned so he does now for he is the same now that he was then so that it, you are to look on the invitations that you find in your Bible, not only as invitations that were made then when they were first spoken or written, but that are made now. So it's true in the scriptures, it's true now. And then two, it shows you that if you come to Christ, he will surely prove to be the same in accepting that he is in inviting. Christ will be consistent with himself. He will not appear one way in calling and inviting you, and then another way in his treatment of you when you come to accept of his invitation. That's a very important point. Uh, many Arminians often think of Calvinism as, a, as, a, as the idea that uh, a person might want to be saved, but they're not among the elect. Right. I was actually thinking as we were working through this particular section, Jeff, that, you know, the discussion of should we be preaching the gospel evangelistically to the visible church discussion that comes up sometimes in reform circles. And um, yes, <laughs> and Edwards yeah. exemplifies that, that he is he is preaching evangelistically to a mixed multitude. He is preaching the gospel. He is calling sinners to come to Christ. This is a very fine example. The whole sermon is a fine yeah. example of you know, everybody needs Jesus, every believer needs Christ, every hypocrite needs to be converted to Christ, every unbeliever needs to be converted to Christ, and those invitations are powerful. Edwards even uses Revelation 3.20, the, the uh, favorite of Arminians. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Interestingly, that was not spoken to an unbelieving world, but to no, a visible church. So Edwards is doing a very consistently biblical thing, and it's a great example, right, for us today. Yeah. And he goes on, secondly, so firstly was how Christ has invited you to come to him with promises that he will accept you if you do so. The second major point, how Christ has treated those that have come to him heretofore. Christ in times past has graciously received those that have come to him. He has made them welcome. He has embraced them in the arms of his love. He has admitted them to a blessed and eternal union with himself and has given them a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. And he is the same still that he has been heretofore. Again, stressing the point that Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever with regard to his open, welcoming arms. I love that Edwards just comes out and he says, he, he heads up each of these applications, here is great encouragement, and you may greatly comfort yourself, and you may be assured of your continuance in a state of grace, that there's a strong emphasis on assurance at the end of the sermon, that, that the unchangeableness of Christ is the foundation of our assurance, that if we are indeed trusting in the unchangeable Christ, we are to be assured that he's going to perfect, he's going to strengthen, he's going to establish, he's going to redeem. Um, 
And I love that he says at the very end here, he says, from the unchangeableness of Christ, you may learn the unchangeableness of his intercession, how he will never cease to intercede for you. Edward says he will be the same uh, forever and ever, and therefore so will be your happiness in heaven. As Christ is an, is an unchangeable Savior, so he is your unchangeable portion. That may be your rejoicing, that however your earthly enjoyments may be removed, and Dave, that was your point earlier, Christ can never fail. Your dear friends may be taken away, and you suffer many losses, and at last you must part with all those things, yet you have a portion, a precious treasure worth more 10,000 times than all these things. That portion cannot fail you, for you have it in him, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so it really does end on this majestic note of you have everything in Jesus. It will never be taken away from you, just like Mary and Martha. You know, you've chosen the good portion. You have the good portion in Christ. You have an eternal reward in Christ. Look to him, have strong confidence, be assured in him. And so it really is a wonderful um, climax, as it were, to a really helpful sermon. Any final thoughts before we close out today? Yeah, if I may, that last section that you read there, Nick, I can give you and our listeners a personal experience with that last section, really three paragraphs there. Several years ago, uh, in the church that I planted, we had a little thing that we did on Tuesday nights. Actually, we did it on Sunday afternoons, uh, come to think of it, called Jonathan and Java. We would just get a Starbucks coffee truck, bring it over, have some snacks, and we would go through uh, two or three Edwards sermons a week. Well, there was a man in our in our church uh, plant, and he's with us here now at Christ Presbyterian, and his mother passed away after a lengthy illness. And I'll never forget, we had, we had done this sermon, and goodness gracious, this was, I know this had to be 10 years ago now at least, maybe 11. And we go to her funeral, and her funeral was in a mainline liberal church here as where the funeral was being held. Now, I'll never forget this brother getting up in the pulpit at his mother's funeral and reading that last section that you just read from, you know, there on page 954 uh, from, you know, you may from this doctrine see the unchangeableness of his love all the way down to you may lose those dear to you, but here you have a portion in Christ. I'll never forget him reading that in, in, in a broken yet very, elo- very eloquent manner, that passage from this sermon and how this truth just redounded in that massive mainline church building, right? And how moved I was to hear and to see something that some would say, oh my goodness, you're really geeking out on theology and Edward's sermons on a Sunday. Aren't there better things to do? And here in his time of, of real brokenness and need and pain, he was able to draw from that and just take, I mean, he literally took this volume into the pulpit and read from it. It's a very, very beautiful thing. And it reminded me also of a time we had for years here we did it for two years. We went through the Institutes of the Christian Religion, four books to the Institutes. We did it in four semesters, a, a book a semester. We had a lady that was in there. She always brought snacks to our group. We did it every other week on Tuesday nights. And we had we had a lady in her 80s. We had 20-something hipsters and everyone in between. Well, there was a lady uh, in there who was in her mid-50s, went out for a thyroid surgery, thyroid cancer. And we thought, okay, she's going to be fine. She went and had her surgery, came back. She's bringing snacks again. Everything was fine. 
about six weeks later, she was diagnosed with um, cancer. It was in her liver and her pancreas, different places. And I remember going over to her house about every two or three days. And when I would go see her, and she was declining very rapidly, it's set by her sick by her sick bed. She'd want me to read from Romans, from Psalms, and from Calvin's Institutes. Well, I would do that every two or three days for about six weeks. Went to her funeral, and on the back of her bulletin at the at the funeral was a lengthy passage, a lengthy quotation from the Institutes on God's providence. And so I just want our listeners to know what they already know. They wouldn't be listening to a, to a podcast like this, this rich, deep theology. Yes, it's, it's really good to geek out on like we do, but man, there's grace for our most painful and sorrowful times in this, in this rich storehouse, this rich treasure that is ours in the church through the writings of men like Edwards, et cetera. Edwards does in this sermon talk about how the unchangeableness of Christ is for those that are suffering um, sorrows and griefs and difficulties and not just um, for the spiritual redemption of the soul, but for the spiritual comfort of the soul. And so um, that's really, that's a great way for us to end this sermon. Um, we are so thankful that you've taken the time to listen to another episode with us today and to work through this sermon. If you've not read uh, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever, we want to encourage you to do so. We know you'll be greatly blessed. This would be a great sermon just to read devotionally over a few mornings if it takes you to finish it. So you can find that online at BibleBB.com. Uh, you can also find it in the two volumes of the Hickman edition, the Banner Truth publication, or the Hendrickson publication. You can find Dave online uh, blogging at teachinglikerain.wordpress.com. So check out his stuff there. Also, if you're in Charlotte uh, at the beginning of or near Charlotte, North Carolina, at the beginning of 2013, go and check out Dave's course on the theology of Jonathan Edwards. You can find Jeff at the various Reformed Forum podcast and blogs, feedingonchrist.com and Christ the Center. And we want to thank you again for tuning in and listening to another episode of East of Eden. <laughs>